Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's topic, how to stay out of probate court in the context of divorce and family law. Our guest, attorney John Shea, a partner at Myrick O'Connell and chair of the firm's family law and divorce group. John focuses his practice on all aspects of family law, including divorce, custody, support, removal, modification, and contempt actions. John Shea, thanks so much for joining us today on On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Thank you, Howard, for having me. Sure, our pleasure. Now, in thinking about our topic, staying out of probate court, mediation comes to mind, John, and I know uh, you do a lot of this. What is mediation in this context? So I probably should clarify, when I say staying out of probate court, I'm talking about in the divorce context, right? Um, because we often hear, how do we stay out? You hear the ads on the radio and the television, you know, how to stay out of probate court. You know, estate planning is an important thing. Um, and we also do that as well, but I'm really focusing in the divorce context. Right. So divorce, historically, divorce is a lawsuit. Uh, every lawsuit starts with a, the same document. It's called a complaint. And in the complaint for divorce, you state your name, your spouse's name, when you were married, where you were married, when you last lived together, and then it asks you to state a, a reason for divorce. Most divorces in today's day and age are not what are called at-fault divorces, but are rather... Uh, no-fault divorces. In Massachusetts, the standard is, is there an irretrievable breakdown of the marriage? Uh, There's no reconciliation possible. So in a typical divorce context, one spouse files a complaint against the other. The court issues a summons. You get the summons and you either have the sheriff or constable serve it on your other spouse. That starts in motion series of things. In Massachusetts, we have the single justice calendar, meaning that for divorce and probate work, every time you go to court, you're going to, you should end up with the same judge, recognizing judges retire, judges sometimes get transferred, but by and large. It also obligates you to generate certain financial information within 45 days of doing that. If you have children, you're obligated to a parent education course. And in this scenario, both sides typically have their own lawyer. And the lawyer's obligation is to zealously represent his or her client to the best of their ability. Sometimes that zealous representation gets in the way of coming to an agreement. Let me just describe the litigation process takes typically no fewer than seven or eight months and often as long as a year. So you may have multiple hearings. You may go to court for a, what's called a motion for temporary orders while the case is pending. Who stays in the house if you have kids? When are the kids going to be with each parent? What are they going to do for Mother's Day, Father's Day? What are they going to do for the 4th of July? What are they going to do during the school year? Who's going to be responsible for their extracurricular expenses? All sorts of things that people can, if they can't reach an agreement, can, through their attorneys, fight before a judge in court. So you each have an attorney. So there's an expense. There's always something of a delay. In our current times here, as we're living through the, this pandemic, there's been a significant delay since the court shut down in mid-March until the court started to have telephonic and Zoom and other virtual hearings over the past month or so. Uh, so that ha- increases the cost. So along with not only the financial cost, sometimes in the context of divorce litigation, 
especially where children are involved. Lawyers can be zealously advocating without recognizing that they might be causing an emotional cost between the two parties because it becomes a who's going to win scenario. And I can tell you after doing this over 30 years, no one wins in this situation. And so by using mediation, you can avoid a lot of that financial cost and you can avoid the emotional costs. Sorry for that long backdrop, but I think it's important to understand the context. So in mediation, the parties hire a mediator. That's someone who's trained to be a neutral. Often they're attorneys, not required to be attorneys. There are psychotherapists and other therapists that do this. There are uh, people that only do mediation or other alternative dispute resolution. But the idea is, general idea, is to have the parties come, meet with a mediator, and to try to come to terms with all the issues that need to be decided in the context of the termination of their marriage. But do it in a setting where you don't have two lawyers zealously advocating for two separate opinions because everyone's perception is their reality. And you can imagine if people, as people decide to divorce, and even if only one person to the marriage wants a divorce, they're going to be granted it because the court has to grant it. That creates some divisiveness. And if you add the two lawyers in, it creates a little bit more divisiveness. So the benefit is, and we see often in divorce mediation, the people come to the mediator without attorneys. Sometimes they come with attorneys, and that's okay. I always advise my mediation clients, once I've, if I get to the point where I've got an agreement, that they should have an independent attorney review it to make sure that it contains what they understand it to contain or what they think it contains. But the mediator is neutral. Now, I have strong opinions on who should be doing it. I really think someone that has extensive experience in litigating divorce matters is typically in a better position to serve as a mediator because she or he will understand what the judges are looking for in a document form-wise, but also they'll understand and can appreciate if the parties come to an agreement on a certain issue that a judge may not like it. For example, I've seen many people mediation say, well, I think she's worked for the gas company for 25 years. She's earned that pension. I, I don't think it's fair for me to have a piece. And that person may not have any retirement. And it's a little bit sad when you're in court waiting for your case to be called and see these reasonably intelligent people in front of a judge with an agreement and the judge saying, excuse me, sir, madam, you realize you're entitled to a portion of this and they judges sometimes won't accept an agreement. So again, I think it's important to go to a mediator who's got significant experience in litigating these because she or he will know what the judges want. Because usually with a mediator, the parties share the cost. I don't always know exactly how that works. Most of my agreements call for 50-50. Many people do, but some people have a different way of doing it. So they're cutting the cost. I know, although I don't recommend it, so people um, don't always have an attorney review it. So they're saving costs there. The other thing is it's private. You're not doing this in a public room with maybe 30 or 40 other people watching you, attorneys, other litigants, uh, court officers, clerks. You can do this on your own. That's very important to people. Uh, my experience is people, certainly in the public sector, people who are executives or have other visible jobs, if you will. Sometimes, you know, people, if people are in a similar profession, you know, maybe there are two physicians or two executives that are getting divorced. They don't want their private information to be within the public realm. And most of what goes on in probate court is in, within the public realm. 
Mm. The only thing that's not are the financial statements that people file when they go to court. Those uh, are impounded and accessible only by the attorneys of record and the parties themselves. But there are other documents, for example, a pretrial conference memo will, and sometimes other motions or memorandums will recite private financial or other information. And that's available free to John Q. Public to go down and look at. So that's an important factor. The other piece is you can control, you, the spouses who are getting divorced, the timeframes. You can decide how fast I want this to move along. It depends on their calendar and the mediator's calendar. I strongly believe it allows people to come to an agreement and to have a less emotional baggage, maybe that's a poor term to use, but less divisiveness over certain issues because they're in a room together. And as a neutral, you're always trying to keep things calm. Sometimes we try to inject humor. The lawyers aren't known for their humor, but we try to. (laughs) And if people can do this in a calm way, it's easier to get them to come to terms that they can sign and can live with. As it relates to children, I really think it allows people to learn how to be better at co-parenting. If you just imagine if you're doing litigation and one spouse wants a certain parenting schedule and the other disagrees, you make that argument to the judge. A judge could enter a provision or a parenting schedule that doesn't fit what either party wants. And then they're both disappointed. They've gone through the expense and they're both likely to blame the other. So communication tends to break down. So if you can build a rapport with folks in mediation around important things and what's more important than their kids, if they have them, that's a good building block for them going forward because they're always going to be tied by these children. Sure. Again, you can schedule as you go. Ultimately, you do need to have a judge approve. So there is some judicial involvement. And that's why I mentioned that issue around the, the pension. I have seen that I've had both clients of mine, you know, say, no, I don't want it. I've also been in court and watched people walk out because a judge hasn't approved their agreement and wondering why. But again, you need a good, clean agreement by a mediator. There are very many good therapists and uh, psychotherapists out there. I haven't seen many whose separation agreements or divorce agreements after mediation came in are very strong. Often the language is a little bit too loosey-goosey that no one really knows what the parties agreed on. Hmm. So when I do mediation, I tend to keep in mind, okay, if I'm phrasing something one way, how is a judge going to look at it? I want to make sure the folks understand that completely. Right. Yep. Again, one of the reasons why I asked them to get someone to look at it after I'm done. Sure. Now, how long does a typical, if there is even a typical mediation take? You know, everyone's different. So I've had them, I had one couple that I worked with for two years, and that's a bit of an anomaly because what happened was, and I'm forgetting, it was the wife reloaded, relocated from Boston to Chicago. So just that relocation as a brand new job to want a time to acclimate, that created some delay. And just the physical part was delay. More typically, if people are local, I usually have them come in and the first meeting, I will have already given them information. I typically talk to folks by telephone in advance. I talk to both, either on the same call or separate calls. I send them an engagement letter and kind of give them some sense of what might expect. And at my initial meeting, I do an intake, not dissimilar to what I do in a divorce, but I do it kind of the same way because I've talked to them on the phone. I may have some sense of what's going on, but when you're in a room together or now via Zoom, 
you get a sense for how people really thinking about what the other is saying. So during that first meeting, I can usually identify what's going on. By that, I mean, you know, what's the dispute between them? Where do we have areas that we, I think, are relatively easy? And I tend to start at those ones that I think are easy. Let's get them done. So that first meeting is usually between an hour to two, probably a little bit closer to two. Depending on the complexity, if it's a couple that doesn't have a, a lot of assets or it's a relative short-term marriage or they have relative similar incomes, they're already co-parenting because they both are working, we can work through that pretty quickly. So sometimes even after that first meeting, I can create a draft of the document and maybe the folks come back in in a month or so. And then it could be two or three more meetings. So I've done them as quickly as three meetings within a month. That's really hyper fast, and that's a relatively easy case, meaning not a lot of complexities. Mm-hmm. I've had others, not like the one that took two years because of the move, but I have others that have more complexity that might take six months or nine months. So while that seems like a long time, they're not running into court. They're coming to me with issues. And the ones that tend to take a little bit longer are where they're Significant assets, maybe significant issues about children, maybe a child or or children have some learning disabilities or other issues that require us to really pause and make sure that we're going to be able to address those in the parenting schedule. I've had them where there are businesses involved and trying to figure out how that's all going to work going forward as we terminate the marriage. That can sometimes take a little bit longer. Perhaps they're both involved, but maybe one does the back of the house knows all the financials and the other spouse really doesn't. It may take them some time in order to get up to speed to where they feel comfortable, you know, so they can go consult with their attorney or accountants or financial advisors. But it's relatively quick. I think most of them can be done within six months. I will tell you if it's successful, then what happens at the conclusion is instead of one person filing a complaint for divorce against the other, you jointly file what's called a joint petition. And you you jointly say, look, we've done all this hard work in advance, Judge. Here's all that paperwork that we need to file for the divorce. And uh, here's our agreement. And one of the things I do in my practice that's different than some mediators is I create all the documents necessary to file. Some mediators only create the final agreement Hmm. and send people to the courthouse to fill out the other documents on their own. It just makes it a little bit harder for the folks to do. The one distinguishment I would say, or a distinguishment between getting a judge to approve a joint petition and a judge to approve an ultimate agreement, if you will, on a litigation where one person sued the other, that a difference is if you're in litigation, you end up with an agreement. If the judge approves it, the judge approves it the day you present it, and then you are divorced for practical purposes, but you can't remarry for 90 days until the judgment is absolute. You're still technically married. Right. If you do it by way of a joint petition and you get in front of the judge and the judge approves the agreement, the judge then enters the agreement 30 days from the day you're in front of her. And it becomes absolute 90 days from that day or 120 days from the day you're in front of the judge presenting it. These differences in time are statutory. You don't come back to court ever. You know, if no one dies, typically they become absolute Uh, either in the 90th day in litigation or 120th day from presenting in a joint petition, and the divorce is final. Hmm. What is the cost typically, uh, if there is a typical cost that you could cite for mediations? So uh, let me contrast it to litigation. So Mm -hmm. in litigation, typically, each party needs to 
provide a retainer to their separate attorney, and the retainers can run from four or five thousand dollars to twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars up front. In mediation, everyone does it a little bit differently, depending on the client. For me, if the clients have perhaps a long history with our firm, I may take a minimum retainer or none. Otherwise, a typical, and I would take a retainer somewhere in that $4,000, range, typically the lower as an advance. But again, that's typically being shared between two and rather than each coming up with that same amount. Uh, so it's cutting the cost in half. Very often, I don't earn that $5,000 or $7,500. Everyone does it on however they do it. You know, I do it on, uh, based on my hourly rate, which is somewhere between $375 and $425 an hour, which is typical in central Massachusetts for someone of my level of experience. And I've been doing this for 33 years. Uh, but most folks will do it on their regular hourly rate. Again, there are some cases where I just don't require a retainer for mediation, and I do a pay-as-you-go. So if folks come in and we've done a session, and that takes you know two hours, there's two hours of my time, but I may be creating documents in the meantime. So it's whatever your hourly rate is times the number of minutes or, or tenths of hours that it takes you to create those documents. So in a general sense, Howard, it's impossible for me to tell you exactly what it would cost. Right. <laughs> It would be certainly far less than litigation, and I think most of the folks I mediate with come in under that $7,500 total. That's between two parties, Hmm. whereas, again, if they go to litigation, they're going to spend more than that up front in a retainer. We've been talking with Myrick O'Connell partner and family law and divorce group chair John Shea about mediation, various ways to avoid probate court in the context of divorce and family law. John, first of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been fascinating and hopefully very helpful to the listeners. So thank you so much for being on this program. Howard, it was my pleasure. And if you'd call my wife and tell her I said something fascinating, that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Now, John, how can folks contact you with questions or concerns about what we've talked about? So, if folks can call me at my my office, my direct line, which I answer unless I'm on the phone or in court or in a meeting, is 508-860-1560. They can reach me through our website, which is Myrick O'Connell, or they can email me at the letter J, Shea, S-H-E-A, at Myrick, M-I-R-I-C-K, O'Connell, O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L.com if they want to email me. Or they can take a look at me on the our website. Pretty easy to find. Great. Thanks again, John. Howard, thank you very much. Sure. On behalf of attorney John Shea and the law firm of Myrick O'Connell, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. (laughs) 